This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is our last installment of the series, A Woman Scorned. When a person finds out their spouse is cheating on them, they may react in any number of different ways. Some might pack their suitcase and tell them to get out. Some might try to talk with their cheating spouse to see if the marriage can be saved. Others might hire a private detective to get the goods on their spouse. Still others might seek out the other party and create a scene. In this story, you'll hear about a woman who did all these things, as well as one final act that would have her facing the prospect of life behind bars. This is Chapter 4, Clara Harris, Murder by Mercedes. February 14, 1992. Clara Suarez was on top of the world. It was Valentine's Day, and also it was her wedding day. She was marrying David Harris at the exclusive Windermere Yacht Club in Houston, Texas. She wore a lacy, long-sleeve wedding dress and sprigs of baby breath in her hair. She looked beautiful and beamed with happiness standing next to her dark-haired, handsome new husband. Clara was ecstatic to start this new chapter in her life. She and David had big goals, and soon they would begin to make all of their dreams come true. Clara Suarez was born in Colombia, South America. Her father died when she was only six years old, and her mother provided for her daughter by designing and selling clothing to well-to-do clients in Bogota, Colombia. Clara was smart and excelled in school. She continued on to college and then dental school. She started a dental practice in Colombia, but her goal was to emigrate to the United States. She applied and was accepted to St. Louis's George Washington University Medical School. Even after graduation and with a Colombian dental degree, she had to spend an additional year at a U.S. dental school. She chose the University of Texas Dental School in Houston to meet the licensing requirements to practice in the United States. While in Houston, on a whim, Clara entered a beauty contest and won the title of Miss Columbia Houston. David Harris grew up in the Houston area, attending the University of Texas and then enrolling in the dental school. He received his doctorate of dental surgery in 1989, two years before Clara would complete her degree there. Clara and David both started their careers as dentists at Houston's Castle Dental Center, where they met. They were quickly attracted to each other, and they respected each other for their drive and work ethic as well. They quickly became engaged and began planning their Valentine's Day wedding in 1992. In 1993, Clara left Castle Dental when she bought out a retiring dentist's Lake Jackson, Texas practice. She became well-known and liked by locals as the pretty, caring, and skilled Dr. Clara, and her dental practice quickly grew. She named the practice Lake Jackson Dental Care, and hired Diana Sherrill to run the front office. She built up the practice to 15 employees, working long hours to care for her rapidly expanding client list. Her husband specialized as an orthodontist and began working at the practice every Monday to see patients at the Lake Jackson office. Dr. David was equally well-liked by the staff and patients. Eventually, David was able to open his own practice in Clear Lake City. With his wife's help, he opened Space Center Orthodontics. They continued to expand the business, and by their 10th year of marriage, they had six thriving offices 
and their monthly income was in the range of $50,000 to $75,000. They began construction on a large dental complex off of the busy I-45 highway. Along with facilities for himself, general dentists, and hygienists, he also planned to have an office that would eventually be for his 16-year-old daughter, Lindsay. Lindsay, a child born from his previous marriage, had plans to go to dental school and join her father in his practice. Lindsay and Clara had become close after her dad remarried. She spent every summer with her father since her parents' divorce when she was four years old. Employees, patients, and friends saw David and Clara Harris as the perfect couple. They were both attractive, driven, hardworking, and seemed to genuinely love and respect one another. They were more than husband and wife, they said. They were also a team. David adored his beautiful Colombian wife and sought her input in all business matters. They worked in different offices most of the time now, with Clara in the Lake Jackson office and David in the Clear Lake office, but they were often seen together socially and at employee events. They were a happy and loving couple by all accounts. They purchased a large, beautiful home located in Friendswood, Texas. There was only one thing missing from their lives, and that was children. Clara desperately wanted to become a mother, and when it didn't happen after a few years, she approached this challenge like every other she had encountered in her life, head on. She began a long series of costly fertility treatments. It took five years, but finally, David and Clara welcomed twin boys into their family. They named them Brian and Bradley. Clara, like many first-time mothers, was fiercely protective of her two boys. David praised her as a wonderful mother, at first, but as time went on, he felt somewhat neglected. She was mostly preoccupied with work and the children, and he felt they were beginning to drift apart. A pretty dark-haired woman named Gail was hired to work in the Clear Lake office in August of 2001. Before long, the staff noticed that Dr. David began spending his time in between patients at the front desk chatting with the petite brunette. This was unlike the doctor who was always so busy with back-to-back patients, they rarely saw him away from the dental chairs. In February of 2002, Dr. David and Gail began having lunch together, usually at nearby Perry Steakhouse. David Harris's office manager, Susan Hansen, was not happy upon this discovery. She felt it was inappropriate. Fifty miles away at Clara's practice, her friend and office manager, Diana Sherrill, had also noticed Clara's husband behaving differently. While before, he was always friendly to Clara's staff, now he stayed in the back office and spent almost no time interacting with them. He was always on the phone, Diana remembered. He'd lost about 20 pounds and seemed to be dressing more attractively as well. There was an employee meeting at David's Clear Lake office that Diana Sherrill attended. Clara was not present. After the meeting, the staff and Dr. David left for a company lunch. Gail rode in the front seat of David's car instead of his office manager, Susan, which was usually the case. Diana also observed that Gail seemed to know her boss's car well, handing David's sunglasses to him out of a compartment without being told where they were, etc. She noticed her body language seemed more intimate than was appropriate for a boss and employee. She suspected David Harris and Gail Bridges of having an affair. In the summer of 2002, Diana Sherrill accompanied Dr. David and several other employees, including Gail Bridges, to the construction site of the new dental complex. During the tour, David and Gail slipped off alone, and Diana had had enough. She decided, out of love and respect for Dr. Clara, 
that she had to tell her of her suspicions. On July 16th, Diana sat down with her employer to have a serious talk. You need to protect your marriage, she told Dr. Clara. You need to pay attention to Dr. David. She told her that she could see how much time and energy she expended at work and with her four-year-old boys, but she was worried that she was neglecting her husband, and she was concerned it would affect their marriage. Clara, puzzled at first, finally asked her if she was telling her that she thought her husband was having an affair. Diana told her yes. Clara now began to replay recent events in her mind. She had recently left for a 10-day trip to be part of a friend's wedding in Colombia. Her husband had been angry with her for going, saying they were losing money from her missed appointments while she was gone. Money they needed, he said, for the new construction project. David was very preoccupied with their income. He worked nonstop, often serving a caseload that would seem impossible for most. His office saw almost 100 patients per day. Clara, while also ambitious, felt they had everything they needed. They had a beautiful home, two healthy boys, a great income from a successful practice, and they both drove expensive cars. She didn't think taking a few days off to be a maid of honor for a friend should be such a big deal. So in May, she flew to Colombia over his objections. When she returned, she noticed something different in her husband's behavior, but chalked it up to his resentment over her time away. While before, he'd always spent a lot of time with his boys, he now stopped. He would keep to himself instead, in their music room, playing his drums or their recently purchased $90,000 grand piano. She also noticed that he was on his cell phone a lot. Again, she dismissed it, thinking he was probably just preoccupied with the new construction project. She now also remembered that in June, the weekend after Father's Day, David had told Clara he wanted to go to their lake house alone to have some time to himself. He had never done anything like that before. The first thing Clara decided to do was to freshen up her appearance. Taking Diana with her, she visited a hair salon that afternoon for a new cut and color. She then took Diana to dinner to ask her more questions about her observations at the office. Clara wanted details now. She demanded to know who she suspected that David was having an affair with. Diana named Gail Bridges. Clara drove home, her mind spinning now. She needed to talk to someone who could help her. She called David's mother, Millie Harris. Clara was close with her mother and father-in-law, and they adored her as well. After telling her mother-in-law of her suspicions, Millie tried to reassure her, saying that David loved her, and besides, he would never do anything like that. He was a faithful churchgoer. His parents had raised him in the Baptist church, and he even played the drums in their parish band most Sundays. He'd taken vows, and she was sure he wouldn't break the promise he'd made to Clara. Still, Clara was worried. When she walked into the house that evening, she immediately sought out her husband. Do you love me? She asked David. She says he hesitated in answering her, and then told her that he wasn't sure. In that moment, she knew it was true. Her husband was having an affair. The next morning, David Harris came clean. I think you have to know that there is someone else, he told his wife. Who, she asked, her heart sinking. Gail Bridges, he truthfully answered. Do you love her, Clara wanted to know. I don't know, he responded. Clara began to cry, and when David tried to console her, she pushed him away. She told him she would get an attorney, but David now panicked. I'll do anything not to get a divorce. Clara, hurt, wondered if the only reason he was saying this 
was for financial reasons. Clara owned 51% controlling interest in their businesses. Because of this, they were able to access minority-owned business loans that he needed to continue building the dental complex. She didn't care about these dreams they once shared anymore, she thought. Her dream was now ruined. She ran downstairs where her stepdaughter Lindsay was eating breakfast. Your father is having an affair, she cried. I already know, Lindsay answered. Everybody in the office knows. Lindsay spent her summers working part-time at her father's Clear Lake office, helping with filing and other basic office duties. She'd seen firsthand her father's flirtation with Gail Bridges, even once observing Gail bend over to pick up a paper while waving her behind in her father's face in a suggestive manner. She'd also heard the murmurings in the office for the last few weeks. Upon hearing this news from her stepdaughter, Clara ran back upstairs and slapped her husband in the face. You said you'd only been out with her one time. You said you'd only kissed her hand. Clara was humiliated. Not only was her husband lying to her and cheating on her, but all of her employees knew about it before she even suspected. Alternating between being angry with her husband and feeling desperate at the prospect of losing the love of her life, she quickly came up with a plan to save her marriage. She screamed at David that he had to fire Gail and go to marriage counseling. David, reacting to his wife's anger, grabbed her arm and threw her down on the floor. Lindsay, hearing the fight, came upstairs. What are you doing, Dad? she yelled at him. She just found out. What are you doing to her? David, seeing his daughter come to his wife's defense, became angry. You two are perfect, he said. I'm leaving. You'll never see me again. He fumed throughout the house while Clara cried. Eventually, they both pulled themselves together and got ready to leave for work. Clara had gotten David to agree to immediately fire Gail. Unwilling to let him out of her sight, especially in the presence of Gail Bridges, she decided to ride with him to his office to make sure it happened. Lindsay rode with them as well. On the way, David said he would begin looking for an apartment that night. He didn't know how he'd do it, he complained. He had 85 cases to see that day at the office. Clara still wasn't sure whether or not David had been intimate with Gail Bridges. Her mind whirled on her way to the office. Once there, she quickly left the car and approached the front desk and found Gail. Lindsay would later say that Clara approached Gail professionally. I need to talk to you, she told her. She took Gail's arm and led her to the back office. Once inside, she locked the French doors. They were made of glass, and David and Lindsay could only look on at the scene helplessly. What kind of relationship do you have with my husband, she asked Gail. I don't know why you're asking me these questions, Gail answered, unconvincingly. Give me your keys to the office, Clara then demanded. What did I do, Gail complained, as Clara walked her back through the office and through the outer door, closing and locking the door behind her. Clara had fired Gail and locked her out of the office without any fireworks. Clara then returned to the back office and broke down in sobs. Lindsay and Susan soon joined her. David kept returning to the back office to complain about the 85 patients he had to see that day and how the three crying women weren't helping him create cash flow. Clara and Lindsay returned home together. Clara was still crying, but she began to pull together a plan to win back her husband. She and Lindsay drove to the mall to find books on relationships and marriage from the Barnes & Noble bookstore. She then called her mother-in-law and told her that she and David needed to have a meeting with them. Besides being David's parents, Gerald and Millie Harris were also the couple's best friends. David respected them completely, and Clara thought they could help her talk some sense into him. 
That evening, they met in the elder Harris's living room. Gerald scolded his son for violating his sacred vows, but he told him that God also forgave. The couples then prayed together, and David asked for forgiveness. David and Clara returned home. David seemed genuinely contrite, and Clara was hopeful. They reaffirmed their love to one another, and that night they made love. He also confessed to her that he had been intimate with Gail. The next day, Clara began her mission to improve herself so that her marriage would never be threatened again. She went to Victoria's Secret and bought sexy lingerie, shopped for a more attractive wardrobe, and visited a gym where she purchased a membership and hired a personal trainer. While Clara was a petite and trim woman, she felt she'd put on a few pounds in the last few years. Now, at age 45, she was determined to lose weight and get her shape back. Maybe she couldn't have the body she'd had when she'd won her Miss Columbia Houston title, but she could strive to be as attractive as possible for her husband, she thought. Next, she visited a Clear Lakes plastic surgeon and scheduled a $5,000 breast augmentation surgery. Clara called her husband and told him she wanted to go on a date with him that evening. They needed to talk to plan out their future together. He agreed. She wanted to go to a romantic piano bar, but when they couldn't locate one, they pulled into an airport hotel, knowing there'd be some kind of bar there. They entered a sports bar, and while not ideal, Clara felt it was at least a place they could talk alone. While Clara questioned him about what he needed from her that he'd sought out in another woman, David began to list the reasons he'd been attracted to Gail in the first place. Clara took this information seriously, even pulling out two cocktail napkins and a pen. On the first napkin, she wrote the title, General Gail and on the second, General Clara, to mark down the attributes David was listing, comparing his wife to his mistress. On her napkin, she wrote that David said she was pretty. Under Gail's, she wrote, also pretty. Clara wrote in parentheses, reasonably. Under hers, she wrote, smart. Under Gail's, smart as well. Clara was educated, he said. Gail was also reasonably educated. He said Clara was a poor communicator. She was negative about his ideas. In contrast, Gail was a good communicator. She communicated well with both himself and others. Clara was poor at letting him do the things that he wanted to do. Gail, on the other hand, went along with whatever he wanted to do no matter what. You interrupt while Gail always allows me to finish talking, he told her. You make pessimistic comments while Gail thinks that my ideas are always correct. David told her that she tended to dominate conversations, not allowing others to speak. Gail had what he called good frequency, or a more balanced frequency of give and take in her conversations. David was comparing a woman he'd been married to for over a decade with a younger woman who was also his subordinate at work and someone he'd been having an infatuation with for only a few months. Not quite a fair comparison. David also said that Clara was sometimes loud, while Gail had a soft, breathy voice that sounded like Marilyn Monroe's. Already feeling extremely hurt, Clara, however, continued asking him about how he would compare them physically. Gail smiled more, he said. He continued to note their physical attributes. On Gail's napkin, she wrote, Big Boobs. On her napkin, she wrote, Will Be Big Boobs. On her napkin, she wrote fat. On Gail's, she wrote David's description, no fat, perfect body. 
Clara's eyes were prettier. They both had nice hair, David said. Finally, he told her, You are a large woman, too big. Gail and I fit together better when we are making love. She is petite, perfect to sleep with and hold all night. In these comments, we can see a cruel streak in David Harris, whether he meant to be or not. Finally, he told her that she spent too much money and was a workaholic. Clara said she realized she worked a lot, just like he did. She now told David she would quit her position at the dental practice and devote herself full-time to her marriage and her family. I can make you happy, David, she promised him on their way home. The next morning, the couple arrived at the Clear Lake office to announce to the staff that Clara had retired from the practice and would now become a stay-at-home mom. That weekend, David and Clara tried to get back to normal. They decided to take Lindsay and the boys, along with the nanny, Maria, to the beach for the day. While the children played in the water at the Galveston beach, David told Clara that he needed to talk to Gail to end things. That's fine, Clara told him. You can call her and talk to her. David, however, said he needed to do it in person. Clara said he could meet Gail in a public place, like a restaurant. She'd wait in the car where she could watch them, she said. Within Clara's hearing, David called Gail to tell her he needed to meet with her to talk. They agreed to meet the following Wednesday, July 24th, at Perry's Grill and Steakhouse on Bay Area Boulevard. Neither knew at the time how fateful that date would become. On Sunday, the family attended service together with David's parents at the Shady Crest Baptist Church. They spent the remainder of the day by their pool with the children. On Monday, July 22nd, David, as usual, went to work at the Clear Lake office. Clara began her first day as a full-time homemaker. With time on her hands, Clara began to think about Gail Bridges. She'd heard rumors about the woman around the office in the months since she'd been hired. She'd been previously married to Steve Bridges, and they had three children. Gail had brought her kids to a work function, and Clara recalled that they were beautiful, well-behaved children. The rumors were that Steve and Gail Bridges had a close friendship with another couple, Charles and Julie Knight. Charles Knight had suspected his wife and Gail Bridges of being more than friends and began secretly recording their phone conversations. Once he was convinced that Gail and Julie had become lovers, he took the information to Gail's husband, Steve. Others in their social circle had begun to talk. Someone even said they'd witnessed Julie and Gail kissing when they thought that no one was watching. During this time, Gail also underwent breast enlargement surgery and began dressing differently. More sexy, friends said. In January of 1999, Charles Knight told Steve Bridges what was going on between their wives. At first, he didn't believe it. But after hearing Charles out, he confronted his wife. She didn't admit it, but began to cry. The Knights began counseling, and Chuck said she admitted in therapy to some sexual dalliances with Gail. By May, the marriage was in tatters, and Julie moved out. Julie moved into a gated complex, and Gail moved into a unit across the street from her, soon after she and Steve separated. Now remembering these rumors, Clara Harris began to tell herself that Gail Bridges was to blame for the affair. It was obvious, she thought, that Gail was just using David for his money. She was a lesbian who had a girlfriend, so she couldn't actually be in love with her husband. She was using and deceiving him, she decided, and she was going to prove it to him so he could be through with her once and for all. They then could get back to the happy marriage they'd once shared. To this end, 
Clara Harris placed a call on Monday, July 22nd to Blue Moon Investigations. She wanted an investigator to tail Gail Bridges and, if possible, get compromising video of her with Julie Knight. She was told she would need to pay in advance and to bring license plate numbers, addresses, and a photograph of her husband. Blue Moon Investigation was owned by Bobby and Lucas Bacha. Bobby Bacha had made a name for herself in the news when she was hired by the family of Morris Black. Black was the elderly man who was killed by the millionaire Robert Durst while he was in hiding in Texas. Durst, after killing Black, then cut up his body and tossed it in the Galveston Bay. Morris Black's family wanted Bacha to find evidence to put Durst away for murder. Black's head had never been found, and without the head, cause of death could not be determined. In Durst's version, a struggle between the two men ensued, and the gun went off accidentally. Bobby was able to fish several items out of the bay, including two female wigs, Durst was in hiding at the time and pretending to be a woman, women's clothing, unopened makeup, and what appeared to be a blood-stained carpet, but they never found Morris Black's head. Durst subsequently was acquitted of murder. Bobby Bacha never met Clara Harris, but Clara met with one of Blue Moon's investigators, Claudine Phillips. Clara arrived with the requested information and paid a little over $1,500 up front for them to begin surveillance on David Harris. They were to start the following day, Tuesday, when he left his Clear Lake office at 5 p.m. At that same meeting, Clara spoke to the investigator for 20 minutes, telling her about her husband's affair, his usual routine, and all the places he admitted to her that he'd been with his mistress. Their usual haunts included Perry's Steakhouse, a Chinese restaurant, the aquarium restaurant in Kema, and they'd taken rooms at the Weston Galleria, as well as the Nassau Bay Hilton. Claudine handed her a book that she gave to many clients whose spouses were having affairs. It outlined how to obtain a divorce in Texas. I will never divorce my husband, she said. I just want to prove that Gail is deceiving him. She kept repeating that she wanted them to get video or audio recorded proof that the two women were in a lesbian relationship. Claudine told her they would do their best to get audio, but it might be difficult in a public place without blowing their cover. Clara said to get as many details as possible. Claudine explained that they would start the surveillance and then would contact her the following day, after 1 p.m., to update her on any news. She also explained the contract she signed required her not to be present when they were doing the surveillance. If she interfered in any way, her deposit would be forfeited and no fees would be returned to her. Clara signed the contract and left the office. Since she found out about the affair, Lindsay had been sticking to her stepmother like glue. She found herself conflicted. She was so angry with her dad for having an affair with Gail, a woman she'd liked very much, by the way. She found Gail fun and smart and vibrant, but she was glad she was gone from the office, even though she'd miss her. This way, she figured, her dad wouldn't be tempted, and maybe things could get back to normal. Even though she was angry with him, she loved her dad very much. She felt he'd just made a mistake, and now he needed to correct it. She could see how much his actions had hurt Clara, who she also loved. She was on her stepmom's side on this, and would try to do whatever she could to help Clara feel better, so they could all be happy again. On Tuesday, July 23rd, Lindsay and Clara spent the day together. They got into Clara's car, a silver Mercedes S-Class, and drove to the Nassau Bay Hilton Hotel. They parked in front of the hotel and went in. Clara walked up to the desk clerk and asked to see a room. He gave her a key to a mini-suite. Lindsay and Clara took the elevator up to the room and then entered. 
Clara looked around the room. She was calm, Lindsay later said. Clara commented, Well, I guess this is where they spent their time. Clara looked out of the window where she could see the Windermere Yacht Club just next door. It was particularly hurtful to Clara that David had taken his mistress for afternoon trysts within sight of the place they'd wed just ten years earlier. They returned the key to the desk clerk and then had lunch at the hotel restaurant. Clara began to weep over her lunch, Lindsay remembers. After lunch, she had Lindsay drive to the Blue Moon office. Clara was giving them additional information, including Gail's friend Julie's last name, the descriptions of their cars, as well as more photos. Lindsay would later say once she realized what Clara was doing, she thought it was an invasion of privacy. Clara was introduced to Lindsay Dubeck, the person assigned to do the actual surveillance of David Harris. Clara, before leaving, broke down in tears thanking them. She quickly regained her composure before she left. On Tuesday, July 24th, Clara was growing more anxious as the time grew nearer for David's meeting with Gail. She had a right to be nervous. On Monday, David had told her that he missed Gail. David had continued to call Gail, and on Tuesday, he called again. And on Tuesday, he called again to verify the meeting time and place. They were scheduled to meet at 6 p.m. at Perry's Steakhouse, but instead moved the meeting to the Nassau Bay Hilton. Julie cautioned her not to go, but instead to wait to see him until after he was divorced, like he promised her. Gail would later tell investigators that she was genuinely shocked when she was fired by Clara. She said that David had told her that Clara had cheated on him in the past, and now that they had an open marriage. According to David Harris, Clara knew he slept with other women and didn't ask him for details. He told Gail that he'd fallen in love with her and was planning to leave his wife. Once she was fired and it became clear that Clara didn't know about his affair, she was angry with him, she said. But she also said she had fallen in love with him as well and had begun to plan a future together. She agreed to meet him, but told Julie she was not going to sleep with him, but would merely stay in the hotel lobby and talk. On Tuesday afternoon, Susan Hansen, the operations manager who was in charge of all the Harris's offices, called Clara at home. She was also a friend and had taken it upon herself to keep an eye on David Harris. Now she called to give her directions to Gail's home. Susan had followed David after work, but had lost him at a light. However, she was able to give her Gail Bridges' address. Clara began to cry, and she and Lindsay got into Clara's Mercedes to look for David and Gail. They drove to her house, but there was no sign of anyone home. Clara looked into the garage to see if David's car was parked there, but it was empty. They then began to drive to all the places Clara thought they might be meeting. First to Tommy's Patio Cafe, where David said they'd had lunch. In between places, she placed two calls to the Blue Moon Agency. They should know where he was by now, she thought. The calls went unanswered, and both times she left a message. She then had Lindsay drive to the Kima Aquarium, but they were not there either. Clara was about to give up. She told Lindsay they'd go shopping instead, and she'd hopefully hear back from the investigator. On the way to the mall, Clara's phone rang. It was Louis Bacha of Blue Moon returning her call. He told her that David was currently under surveillance, and she would receive a full report the next day, as promised. Clara would later say that Bacha told her they were at the Hilton. The agency denies this, saying that their protocol was never to tell a client where the person they hired to tail was found until after the investigation was over. They did this for the safety of all parties involved, they said, and Bacha would never have broken this rule. 
What's likely is that he admitted that David had been located at a hotel. Clara would have known that he was most likely at the NASA Bay Hilton. She later said she was told he was on the fourth or sixth floor of the hotel. Upon hearing this, Clara called her home and spoke to the nanny, telling her to pack up her husband's best clothing and put it in a suitcase and place it outside the door of the garage. She also told her to take the rest of his clothes and throw them in the trash. She then told Lindsay to drive to the NASA Bay Hilton. Lindsay Dubeck, the investigator assigned to follow David Harris, had a video camera ready when she arrived at his office. It was Wednesday, July 24th, just after 5 p.m. She saw David leave his office and then followed him to a Bank of America. A few minutes later, he returned to his car and she followed him as he drove to the parking lot of the Hilton Hotel. He arrived at 6.18 p.m. and went inside. Dubik then circled the parking lot. She quickly found Gail Bridges' Lincoln Navigator. She'd been given the description and the license plate number by Clara Harris. It was parked in the back parking lot. At 6.57 p.m., she observed David walking Gail Bridges to her car. They stayed in the car talking for about 20 minutes. They then walked back into the hotel lobby together. A friend of Dubeck's, Andrea Thompson, arrived to meet her at her car. They decided that Andrea would take a peek into the lobby of the hotel to see what the couple was doing. Andrea saw David and Gail register at the front desk and then take the elevator upstairs. She then returned to the car and told Dubeck. Dubeck then decided to wait a while in her car to record them when they returned. Meanwhile, Clara arrived at the Hilton. Lindsay parked in front, just opposite the entrance. Clara and Lindsay entered the hotel together. Clara asked the desk clerk if anyone had registered under either David or Gail's names. He told them no one had. This was true only because David had paid cash, so the desk clerk, Garrett Clark, hadn't bothered to ask for a driver's license or have him sign a registration slip. He'd simply taken his cash and given him the key to room 604. Clara then walked to the hotel guest parking lot, followed by Lindsay. She soon found Gail's black SUV parked in the back lot. Clara immediately grew enraged. She ran at the car, grabbed the rear windshield wiper, and bent it in half. She then took her car keys and began to scratch them along the side of the car. She bent the front wipers as well and broke off a piece of the car's hitch plate. Finally, she took her keys once again and began to scratch the word adulterer into the paint. Now, she wanted to confront David. She devised a plan for Lindsay to call her dad and tell him that he needed to come home because one of the boys was sick. Bradley frequently suffered from asthma attacks, so she knew this would be believable. Lindsay called her father on his cell phone and he answered. You need to come home, she told him, giving him the fake story about her little brother. He told her he was on his way. After a few minutes, when he still didn't arrive at the lobby, Clara lost patience. She called him herself. She told him to hurry up and get home. He said if their son was so sick, she should take him directly to the hospital and he'd meet her there. No, she insisted, come home. He told her he was on his way. It was 8.30 p.m. As they waited for him downstairs, Lindsay took her stepmother outside, not wanting her to cause a scene in the lobby. They waited, looking through the window for him to emerge from the elevator. When he did, he was holding hands with Gail Bridges. Clara exploded and ran back inside. She ran straight for Gail and began attacking her. Before Gail could register what was happening, 
Clara hit her and knocked her to the ground. She grabbed handfuls of her hair and began repeatedly slamming her head into the lobby floor. She ripped Gail's blouse off of her. Garrett Clark, the desk clerk, heard the commotion and looked up. He saw Clara Harris hitting the dark-haired woman with a closed fist. He jumped over the desk and towards the fight. The woman on top was screaming, You bitch! He's my husband! Loudly, Clara Harris screamed to anyone within hearing distance, This is David Harris and he's fucking this woman! as she continued her attack upon Gail. The desk clerk and a hotel employee got between the two women as they were grappling with the blouse. Gail was desperately trying to hold on to it to cover herself while Clara was trying to rip it away. The guest got Clara in a headlock and was able to get her off of Gail, but she then broke away and flew at her once more, resuming her attack. Witnesses would say that David Harris stood by mutely while his wife attacked his lover. Garrett Clark finally got between the two women using his body as a shield. Clara began hitting Clark in the face to get him out of the way of her intended target. David, standing off to one side, was screamed at by his daughter. I hate you, Lindsay yelled as she began hitting him with her purse. The bell captain had arrived to help Garrett Clark. David, finally reacting, pulled Clara away from Gail while the other two men shielded her. Other hotel employees arrived, hearing the fracas. Clara was still screaming and pointing at her husband. He's fucking the secretary, she said over and over. A manager told her to leave the building. David grabbed her and pushed her outside while screaming at her, It's over! It's over! Another witness would say that she'd heard David say, You have to realize this is over. This is the end, to his wife. Garrett Clark helped Gail to collect her things. She was shaking and disheveled, her hair pulled and her blouse in tatters. She'd also been bitten on the leg but she wouldn't feel that until later. It would leave a scar. Please help me to my car. I've got to get out of here, she begged the desk clerk. He walked with her out of the building and around the left side to the guest parking lot. David Harris followed quickly behind. He'd left his wife to be handled by one of the hotel managers who was escorting Clara and Lindsay to their car. Clara got into the driver's seat. Both women seemed distraught. Lindsay was in tears. As Gail approached her car, she saw it had been vandalized. She was angry, but even more afraid as she'd seen what Clara was capable of firsthand. She opened the driver's side door to get in. It was then that she saw David had followed her to her car. Look at what she did to my car, she said. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, he apologized. Clara, in the front of the hotel, started her car and put it into reverse while the manager watched. He was stunned as she threw it into gear and hit the gas, burning rubber as she raced forward. She was screaming and crying again, he said. She was hysterical. He took off after her, trying to get her to stop or to slow down. Stop! You're going to hurt somebody, he screamed. But it was clear she wasn't intending to leave the parking lot. Passing three exits, she raced around the side of the building towards the back lot where Gail was parked. David Harris was standing next to the navigator's driver's side door. Garrett Clark, helping Gail into her car, was the first to see the Mercedes barreling towards them. As Clara approached the car, she turned the wheel sharply to the right, grazing the navigator's rear bumper and then grazing Garrett Clark's hip. But it was David Harris Clara was headed for. Clark saw David's eyes bulge out in fear as the Mercedes barreled down on him. Lindsay, sitting in the passenger seat, would report that Clara said, I'm going to hit him, as she floored the gas and drove straight for her father. David put his hand out in an instinctive gesture as if trying to stop the car. His fingerprints were left on the front of the hood 
as they touched it for a second before he was hit. The Mercedes threw him 25 feet across the parking lot. As soon as it hit him, the car came to a complete stop. David Harris's body flew over a median and came to rest near a concrete curb. Clara then hit the gas again, drove over the first median, then across the parking lot towards her husband, who was lying prone on the asphalt. Driving in circles, she ran over his body once, then twice, then a third time. She then put the car in reverse, driving over his body once again, before pulling forward to run over him one last time. Garrett Clark could hear the young girl inside the car screaming, Stop! Please stop the car! He saw Clara drive over the body twice more after he heard Lindsay screaming for her to stop. Lindsay would say she was screaming at her, You're killing him! But Clara wouldn't stop. Lindsay could feel the sickening bump as the car rolled over her father again and again. Garrett Clark heard another sound in the car he would later describe for investigators. He heard Clara Harris laughing. Cackling was how he described it, as she drove her car over her husband's body again and again. Julie Krager and Robert Williams were on vacation and staying at the hotel when they witnessed the scene in the parking lot. Krager was trained in CPR and was the first to get to David Harris. Clara had stopped the car and gotten out. She was now kneeling by her dying husband. David, look at what you made me do, she heard Clara say to him. She pushed Clara out of the way. Don't move him, she told her. She observed that the woman was crying. Krager could tell immediately that the man was gravely injured. I looked down to see if there was blood coming out of his ears, but he had no ears, she said. Having been dragged underneath the Mercedes that only had a six-inch clearance, his ears had been ripped from his head on the asphalt. Krager tried to reach into his mouth to clear his airway, but his jaw was tightly clenched. Some of his teeth had come loose. She couldn't get his jaw unclenched. He was breathing, but it was very labored, and she knew he was most likely taking his last breaths. Lindsay Harris was nearby crying, screaming, and hyperventilating. Julie Krager called out to her to shut up. He doesn't need to hear you crying like that, she told her. Krager looked over and saw a disheveled woman sitting in a navigator with her head in her hands. She walked Lindsay over and asked if she could put her in the back seat. Gail numbly nodded. Robert Williams stayed with David Harris. He heard Clara scream at her dying husband, Now you see what I can do? He heard Lindsay screaming at her, Get away from my daddy! Williams put his hand on David's chest to see if he could feel a heartbeat, but there was no chest left. It had been crushed under the weight of the 4,000-pound car. A call came in to Nassau Bay Police Department at 8.49 p.m. about a disturbance at the hotel. Officers arrived six minutes later and immediately radioed in for the dispatcher to send EMS and call the fire department and life flight. Hotel employees were holding Clara Harris by the arms as she continued to cry over her husband. The officers quickly placed her in a squad car. They saw a crowd around a black SUV, and as they approached, also saw the vandalism to the car. They noted a silver Mercedes nearby with damage to the right front fender. There was blood on the asphalt and tire marks on the grass of the median separating the sections of the parking lot. David Harris would die before he reached the hospital. He was taken to Christus St. John Hospital, arriving at 9.34 p.m. He was pronounced dead at 9.48. 
His mother was sitting with his body when the detective arrived to take photographs of his injuries. The following morning, an autopsy would reveal severe trauma to the upper body. The chest was crushed with ten ribs broken. His left lung had been punctured. His right lung was intact, which is why he was able to continue to breathe for a few moments afterwards. His skull was also crushed. There was trauma to the chin, scalp, and a large gash at the back of the neck. His jaw was broken and teeth were missing. The pathologist recorded 16 separate cuts and abrasions just on the head and neck. There were five more on his back and another two on the rear of his left leg. Part of the heart was severed from the rest of the organ. His back and pelvis were also broken. The skin and flesh of his arms and legs was shredded, although none of these bones were broken. Lindsay returned to her father's house, accompanied by her uncle. As they pulled into the garage, she saw the suitcase Clara had the nanny pack with her father's clothes sitting by the garage door. She also saw a garbage can next to it that was overflowing with the rest of his belongings. She took the suitcase upstairs to her room with her. She unpacked his clothes, placing them on her bed. She laid with them for several nights to feel closer to her father. Clara Harris was taken to jail and booked on a murder charge. She quickly made bail, posting a $30,000 bond. She was charged with simple murder, which was not eligible for the death penalty. They would not tack on other charges either, like the assault on Gail Bridges or reckless driving. The fact that Clara Harris was wealthy and considered an upstanding citizen made her much luckier than most who commit much less violent crimes. The worst sentence she could receive would be 40 years in prison. The least could be probation. After being released on bail, Clara continued to live in her mansion with her nanny and her two children. She continued to attend Shady Crest Baptist Church and was surrounded by love and support from her friends and family, even including David's own parents. Amazingly, they forgave Clara almost immediately. Some would conclude that they did so in order to continue to have access to their grandchildren. Whatever the case, they remained her supporters throughout the trial. Lindsay, on the other hand, was suing Clara. Or rather, her mother was suing in behalf of her daughter and her two half-brothers for their interest in the estate of their father. The suit was filed to prevent the children's inheritance from being depleted by Clara Harris's legal bills. Clara was David Harris's sole heir. However, if she was convicted, all money and property would be transferred to the children. They needed to make sure the money wasn't gone before or if that happened. Clara hired defense attorney George Parnum to represent her. Eight years earlier, he had defended Andrea Yates, the mother of five who had killed all of her children by drowning them in a bathtub. Suffering from postpartum depression, she had been taken off of a drug that had helped her battle crippling depression before committing the crime. Incidentally, the Yates home was located in the same neighborhood where Gail Bridges lived. Parnum had his work cut out for him. Not only were there scores of witnesses to Clara's deadly rampage, including her own stepdaughter, who now refused to speak to her and was cooperating with prosecutors, but there was a videotape of her husband being repeatedly run over by her Mercedes. Lindsay Dubeck, the investigator Clara herself had hired to spy on her husband, had taken a video of the incident almost in its entirety. It was now in the hands of the police. Clara learned about the videotape initially when she called the Blue Moon Agency two days after the murder to demand her money back. 
She had paid for three days surveillance, she argued, and the job had not been completed, so she was owed a refund. Never mind the fact that she'd killed her husband, which permanently ended the surveillance on him. They told her she'd voided the contract by showing up to the surveillance and would receive no refund. I can only guess that they then took pleasure in telling her that her brutal act had been caught on tape by their investigator. Farnham tried to convince Clara to plead insanity, but she would not consider it. Now he tried to defend her by calling what happened to David Harris an accident. He was planning to show the jury a computer-generated recreation of the defense's version of events. He would try to prove that Clara had only run over David once, accidentally, and had not hit him again. The computer recreation would cost the defense almost $50,000. The media was already reporting widely on the killer driller, as they so cheesily dubbed the scorned dentist. Parnum used this to his advantage to show Clara Harris as a wronged woman who had accidentally killed her husband, not a cold-blooded murderer, as some would report. She sat for interviews with Ann Curry, Diane Sawyer, and other news programs. She was impeccably and expensively dressed and acted devastated at the loss of her husband. Gil Bridges was also suffering the after-effects of the tragedy. Not only had she been hospitalized for contusions and a concussion from the beating she took from Clara, she was also experiencing PTSD from witnessing David's death. In addition, she was also taken to court by her ex-husband. After finding out that his ex-wife was the other woman involved in the David Harris case, he filed suit to modify their custody agreement. Gail had primary custody of two of their three children, and now Charles Bridges was asking for joint custody. He would claim she was emotionally unstable in the aftermath of her boyfriend's murder and said she was mentally unfit to care for their children. He also cited the media's hounding of their mother for the details of her illicit affair with a dentist as contributing to an inappropriate environment for his children. Clara Harris versus the state of Texas began on January 16, 2003. Part of the defense's strategy was going to be the anger Clara felt about Gail using David for his money. The defense wanted to show that Gail Bridges was in a long-term lesbian relationship as proof of this. However, the judge ruled that this allegation could not be brought into the trial. Now Clara's defense strategy became even weaker. One by one, eyewitnesses took the stand to testify to what they had seen Clara Harris do on July 24, 2002. Each was completely adamant in their testimony that they had seen Clara drive over her husband deliberately and with intention up to five times. The defense tried to pick apart the videotape by saying that it was impossible to see the car run over the body. They proposed the theory that David's body was lying inside of the circle the car made around him as Clara drove around the parking lot. Their expensive recreation didn't help much either. The prosecutor challenged their expert's opinion, thoroughly destroying his credibility, especially after his assertion that no blood had been found on the car's undercarriage. Clara Harris's attorney tried to present evidence that she was the victim of domestic abuse. They used the incident that Lindsay was witness to after Clara confronted him about the affair. David had grabbed Clara by the arm and thrown her down on the carpet in their room. Lindsay testified that this had happened, but Clara, while claiming to her attorneys that David had abused her physically, wouldn't allow them to use information about any other incidents of abuse in court. But the final nail in the coffin was when David's daughter, Lindsay Harris, took the stand. Even before they found her father and Gail at the hotel, Lindsay testified that her stepmother had told her, I could kill him and get away with it for how he's been acting. 
She told of being in the car as her stepmother ran over her father. I'm going to hit him, she'd said Clara had told her right before she plowed into her father's body. Lindsay recalled screaming at her over and over to stop and feeling her father's body being run over by the car. Finally, she told them how she was now estranged from her grandparents as they were supporting Clara and how distraught she'd been over the death of her father. Lindsay Harris had attempted suicide four times since her father's death, she told the court. At times during the testimony of the pathologist, as well as Lindsay Harris, Clara began sobbing loudly. The judge admonished her several times to get control of herself, or she would send her out of the courtroom. This would continue throughout the trial, with the judge becoming increasingly irritated as the proceedings continued. Clara, seeing that the defense was going badly, insisted on testifying in her own defense. On the stand, Clara told about the happy life she'd shared with her husband from their wedding day on Valentine's Day 10 years earlier, up until the day she found out about his affair with Gail Bridges. Her attorney entered into evidence the two cocktail napkins that Clara had jotted the comparisons David had made between her and Gail on. She said even after he'd admitted to the affair, she'd held out hope that things would work out and they could be happy once again. But it all blew up in her face the moment she saw her husband leaving the elevator hand in hand with his mistress. She said after the fight and getting back in her car, she only remembers wanting to smash into Gail's vehicle. She didn't remember seeing David or Gail and doesn't remember hitting him with her car, she claims. When she came to a stop and saw David lying on the ground was the first time she realized she'd hit him. On cross-examination, the prosecutor asked, was Lindsay telling the truth when she said you were angry as she took her through the events of the day up until she vandalized Gail's car? Lindsay always tells the truth, Clara answered. The prosecutor locked in on this statement and Clara had to concede that what Lindsay remembered of that day was probably the truth. With that, Clara Harris's fate was sealed. The jury was given instructions to begin deliberations on February 12, 2003. They could find Clara Harris innocent or guilty of murder, manslaughter, or criminally negligent homicide. Under Texas law, the jury could also decide to find her guilty under special issue. In that case, she could face a much lighter sentence than if she was found guilty of the crime of murder. The jury came back with their verdict. Clara Harris was found guilty of the charge of murder. The punishment phase began immediately after the verdict. Lindsay Harris once more took the stand to tell about her life since the death of her father. Clara's attorney also spoke on her behalf to request a lenient sentence. Other supporters spoke to ask for a light sentence for the convicted killer, including her father-in-law, Gerald Harris, who said God forgave Clara, and they should as well. Clara Harris spent her first night in jail. In the morning, court was reconvened, with Clara's attorney requesting probation so she could go home and raise her sons. She was, he stated, the last parent they have on earth. The prosecutor counted with, well, she ought not to be given credit for making herself a single parent. Five hours after they began deliberation, the jury came back with the sentence. Clara Harris was sentenced to 20 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. It was February 14th, 2003, Clara and David's 11th wedding anniversary. Within hours of the verdict, Lindsay Harris reconciled with her grandparents. Even though they'd stood by their daughter-in-law after the murder of their son, Clara Harris filed to give custody of her children to a family friend. The twins went to live with a couple who also were parents to twins. Brian and Bradley continued to live in the same neighborhood, 
and visited their grandparents frequently. The Harris's assets were split among Clara and the children. The children were awarded almost $2 million each, while Clara was allowed to keep about $1.2 million in assets from the estate. Clara Harris was sent to the Mountain View prison outside Gatesville in central Texas. She has a job in prison converting school textbooks into Braille for blind students. Her sons visit her in prison about once a month. She was denied early parole due to the nature of the crime in 2013. She continues to have parole hearings every two years, but is still incarcerated. If she is not granted parole, her release date is scheduled for 2023, when she will be 65 years old. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. you know and trust is now angie and we're so much more than just a list we still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly we can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish so remember angie's list is now angie and we're here to get your job done right get started at angie.com that's a-n-g-i or download the app today Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.